Part twenty of Collected Prose by James Elroy Flecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Geeson in Hazelmere, Surrey. The Public as Art Critic. It is the fashion among certain amiable writers of the present day to exalt public opinion and approve public taste. True merit, they cry, is crowned at last by the civic laurel. Public opinion works slowly but surely, and popular applause is the supreme test of value. Of these amiable writers, Mr. Chesterton is by far the most conspicuous and cunning. The form and style, that is to say the beauties of literature, are nothing to him. He blasphemes the very name of art. He gushes about Watts as if he were the peer of Leonardo da Vinci. As if he had never read Endymion or Isabella, he remarks that Keats was one of those people who are incapable of writing bad poetry. Keats, the most desperately careless and slovenly of all great poets. Keats, who wrote, Why in the name of glory were they proud? But Mr. Chesterton is a democrat, and this is the democratic view of poetry shakespeare was in some respects a typical honest middle-class englishman what a joyous discovery for mr chesterton quick follows the inevitable generalization the first-class artist considers himself the equal of other men like shakespeare and michelangelo and beethoven and goethe are they all third-class then the third-class artist thinks himself superior to other men, like Whistler. The whole doctrine of Mr. Chesterton is a fraud. His whole argument for democracy in art amounts to this. Dickens was a good writer and popular. Therefore good writers are popular. Let us examine the real facts of the case. We must establish, first of all, that there is an actual standard in art. If you think William Watson a better poet than William Shakespeare, your opinion is not merely curious, it is wrong. Should you maintain your opinion was correct, and you had every right to hold it, I might attempt to prove your error to you by appealing to the laws of art but i admit the proof would be abominably hard and difficult not because art has no laws but because it has such terribly difficult and complex ones like all great human institutions but that a standard exists and that criticism is not a mere question of personal taste can be shown by one conclusive proof it is this the more a man studies an art, the more he is compelled to agree with those who have made the same study before him. 
and to admit that the famous names are the great ones he may perhaps differ from the general view in valuing matthew arnold a little less and pope a little more but the striking thing about critics is not that they diverge but that despite all new brilliant and impartial treatments of their subject they agree well then you say if the most famous names are really the greatest public opinion which gives men fame is the infallible critic after all but it is not public opinion which bestows fame the admiration for great names is imposed on the public by a small band of earnest critics who have a passion for art who understand its technique who study its history it is they who fight the long battle against the philistines and having a righteous cause at heart they usually win for the public is not so foolishly self-complacent as mr chesterton imagines the public knows it has its own great business to do and has not the leisure or knowledge to discover artistic secrets and it wisely follows the lead of the expert whenever it can find one for an expert is needed criticism is almost as difficult as creation and there is no royal road to the comprehension of the beautiful no one can understand music who knows nothing of the rules of harmony no one can fully appreciate a picture who has not some idea how lumps of paint are stuck on canvas a play or a novel i admit has a much wider more direct and human appeal and a good unspecialized average intelligence is more likely to succeed in its estimate of literature than in its estimate of painting or music but even literary criticism is largely a technical affair and the criticism of poetry is the hardest branch of the science that exists this critic must have an ear no less subtle than the poet's to mark the apt spacing of the consonants and the noble procession of the vowels words must call up to him all their sweet associations of sound and sense the word road must mean for him not merely one particular road but all the roads in the world whereon men walk like pilgrims from the grey of dawn to the terror of the sunset house must suggest to him all the habitations of clay brick stone or snow where men have lived wept died or played with their children round the fire the word tree for him as for the poet must signify a thing that was once worshipped where still may be hides a nut-brown dryad and whose falling leaves symbolize the end of all our dreaming the critic of poetry must know all the minutiae of the technique not so much that he may be able to carp at faults as that he may realize perfection he must know his art so well that he feels at once and instinctively not after reflection merely 
whether the lines he is reading ring true yet he must not be a pedant he must have deep experience of life he must be a man of character in the true sense of the word he must be moral he must prepare for his task austerely it is a high one he must cast aside for an hour his own puritanism and prejudice his petty even his noble beliefs about the world and become receptive of the impressions of others to the extreme limit of human nature he must not condemn poems because they are morbid profane or deal with what the manchester watch committee who forbade maud allen to dance in their beautiful and virtuous town would call unpleasant subjects he will know that art is divided not into decadent and healthy classic and romantic but into the two mighty divisions of good and bad and that these divisions alone hold true one great dogma alone he must hold that human life is passionately interesting in all its phases that over the filthiest byways the sky of night must stretch its flowery mantle of stars the critic must be of purer mould than the poet himself he must have a profound love for man not the vague enthusiasm of the humanitarian but a vivid delight in all the men in the world men sinful men splendid men coarse or cowardly or pathetic and in all the phenomena of nature sordid or shining the background to our tragedy he must admire if not the beauty then the force the law the cruelty and the power and with this enthusiasm in his soul he will bitterly condemn dullness weakness bad workmanship vulgar thought shoddy sentiment as being slanders on mankind and in this sense and this sense only that it is the glory of man great art is moral yet though so few can be good critics of art i do not mean that art is only for the elect it is indisputable that thousands honestly and genuinely enjoy admire and love certain works of art which they know to be considered great how should it be otherwise a spark of the divine is in us all some sentiment for the sea the wind and sunshine for death and the ancient story of love every life is a poem acted of our trivial affairs painters construct their canvases and poets weave their songs we are whacked as children gozzoli has painted us our sister has a music lesson terborg has drawn her with the light shining on her earnest face our mother peels potatoes chardin has painted her and the potatoes so that we feel we never knew what a potato was like before 
we fall in love and feel that lyrical exultation we cannot express but we know our love is that of paolo for francesca though she lives at number seven brixton gardens we enact our own tragedy and die grand as lear himself bound on the same path as the heroic kings of old but granted that the people have the emotions from which great artists draw the substance of their work have a vague passionate yearning towards those images of beauty which art has fixed yet the people never know how fine a fine work is because they cannot see the vileness of a base one i once heard a shop-girl say that the two plays she liked best were the silver king and that one where the black man gets jealous and kills his girl she meant othello well the sun of art may shine so strong that the blindest eyes are dazzled but only the eagles comprehend the glory of that disc the novelist of the people is marie corelli their poet ella wheeler wilcox their artist blair leighton their musician paul rubens mr chesterton will doubtless say it is because the people are so nice that they admire these marvels that they honestly think miss corelli profound miss wilcox passionate mr b leighton chivalrous and mr rubens lyrical and sparkling the people are pleasant and fascinating i readily agree though i dislike those who parade their affection for the populace and their love of christmases children and the homely virtues in order to make the said populace think what ripping fellows they are but you cannot appreciate both blair leighton and euphronios if you cannot see that the epic of hades it sells by the hundred thousand is beneath contempt you are not fit to read paradise lost if you don't know how bad the bad is you can never tell how good the good is but if the middle classes should exclaim our gods are better than these i should reply that the devotees of robert hitchens and the thumpers of rachmaninoff preludes are in a far worse case than the jolly mass of the people who simply want to be amused many of the middle class falsely imagine they have taste they do terrible disservice to art by buying pretentious and vulgar stuff and setting up a hideous clamour if their sense of propriety is outraged say there were ten good pictures in the neo-impressionist exhibition <laughs> were there six in last year's academy yet no one said that that exhibition was an insult to the public or that those coarse portraits of king edward were a slur on the dignity of empire 
or admit that salome is a faulty opera do you shriek and squeal when some tinkling atrocity like the cavalleria rusticana holds the stage where rose your cultured voices when the new victoria and albert museum emerged in unassuming ugliness with those silly little statues stuck round in a row indistinguishable save by their beards is not that building an insult to the taste of the british public an insult we shall have to endure some hundred years or longer in the old days when the aristocracy really cared for art and pork butchers cared only for their pork there was less chatter and more appreciation for true greatness art lives on to-day but in noble retirement too proud to ask for pence the artist hears all around him infinite rubbish talked about his art and imagines for the moment that the middle classes are sincere and will be willing at least to hear his symphony or read his book you soon undeceive him you middle classes you who have let are letting and will let your poets die of hunger continue to buy your pretty editions of the classics and to frame photogravures of the sistine madonna over your mantel-shelves you know quite well that vital art bores you and you have never understood it end of part twenty